1: and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. The characters in the short story collection Tomb Sweeping, Alexandra Chang's follow-up to her extraordinary debut novel, Days of Distraction, are uncertain about their meaningfulness in the world. Questions of class, identity, immigration, gender, and technology force the characters of Tomb Sweeping to test the nature of their relationships, their connections, intimate and otherwise, to the people in their lives. In To Get Rich is Glorious, a wife and mother tires of having her life ordered by her marriage, her gender, her culture, and finds satisfaction in breaking rules of every kind. In the story Me and My Algo, a woman considers her relationship with her algorithm that seems to know everything about her wants, needs, desires, and fears. It is a relationship that begins to feel like family or something even deeper and more troubling than blood. Other stories plunge us into historical violence and occupation, friendships that change and die as time passes, the relationship between children and aging parents, and the ways in which we measure success in our lives. Orchids, mahjong, surveillance cameras, and offerings for the dead take on emotional resonances and create pivot points that demand difficult choices with uncertain futures. A collection that crosses oceans and cultures telling transnational stories, immigrant stories, and untold stories, Tomb Sweeping delights with its formal play with all that a story form can hold. No story feels expected, No character forgettable. Alexandra Chang is the author of the fabulous novel Days of Distraction. She is also a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 honoree. Her writing has appeared in Zutroba, All Story, The New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Guernica, and elsewhere. She currently lives in Ventura County, California, with her husband and their dog and cats. Welcome to the show, Alexandra.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. And thank you for that lovely introduction.
1: Well, you were my second ever guest. So it is a special treat to get to have you back. I've long been a fan of Days of Distraction and and recommend it everywhere. And now I am an equal fan of your short fiction. So th- thanks for coming back.
0: Thank you. I mean, it's exciting to be back and to... Just see how much this show has grown also and how many incredible authors you've had on it. So it's it's an honor to have been the second and now an honor to have been the who knows how many, what number okay. it is. Almost, <laughs> you know. almost the hundredth.
1: So uh, yeah, a, bun- a bunch since then. But well, thank you very much. And I wanted to start with the title story and the title of the collection, Tomb Sweeping. It's a story about paying tribute to one's ancestors with offerings both tangible and intangible. In the case of this story, that tribute comes in the form of understanding capital H history uh, in Singapore under Japanese occupation. The young narrator is given a pictorial history of the period of that occupation during World War II there is a sense that ghosts of that time period, both related to the narrator and not, require memorial and sacrifice. Could you talk about the specifics of this history and how it's embodied in this story?
0: Yes. So the pictorial history that you mentioned that makes its way into the story is this book called The Japanese Occupation from 1942-1945. And it depicts... Uh, during World War II, the Japanese invasion and occupation of Singapore, which prior to writing this story I knew little about, and during this occupation, essentially the Japanese army uh, came and did an incredible number of violent things, including massacring uh, several—not several—who knows how many—in terms of number, but thousands and thousands of men at uh, Changi Beach. And this is the beach that sort of is the central location of the story, besides uh, the tombstones and the graveyard, where the narrator, who is a 12-year-old girl, um, where her grandparents are buried. And part of this ritual, every year, Qingming or Tomb Sweeping Day, part of this ritual is to go and burn money, spirit money, um, items, give food to ancestors in order for them to be able to pass into the spirit world or have a healthier and happier life in the Mm -hmm. spirit. Uh, But the history of this occupation was especially important to the narrator's grandfather. And what really comes to... The forefront for this narrator is um, embodied in this person, a medium who helps with these rituals each year. And he is half Chinese, half Japanese. And given this Japanese occupation during World War II, her grandfather has a very difficult time allowing for this medium's presence. Um, And it really is about these lasting traumas, and also the ways in which this idea of never forgetting
1: mm-hmm. can
0: lead to, in all honesty, and in this story, racist and uh, nationalist thinking, in a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This is what the narrator is sort of confronting. the These historical traumas that have lasted through many generations um, and are really... Spouted by her grandfather, and then are embodied in this medium. Who, I don't think this is a spoiler since it's in the very first sentence. uh, Who ends up vanishing into the the sea? Where this? Yeah, and it seems important that
1: uh, the 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 narrator perceives it as as basically being sacrificed into uh, into the ocean.
0: She sees it as. These spirits of massacred people who um and particularly her uh, her, I guess we would say great uncle, her grandfather's brother, um, who was killed at this beach. She sees it as these people like taking him as a sort of sacrificial person in a way to almost like quote unquote pay respects to mm-hmm. whether or not that is the perception. <laughs> of a child or an actuality. That's, a, I don't know, I guess a reader can interpret that to their own choice. But mm-hmm. uh, for the narrator, that this is what she perceives and she really struggles with that idea.
1: The story Persona Development is a narrative that mixes our current fascination with self-surveillance, mixed with the difficulties of A changing relationship between the narrator and her aging parents who live on the opposite coast from her. The surveillance in question is a camera that is marketed by the narrator herself as a way of keeping an eye on one's elderly parents. Can you discuss this conflagration of invasive surveillance technology and the metaphor it develops for how we long to be in the lives of our parents, even as we become
0: adults? The invasive part. I think it's interesting because the character in that story, Patricia, who is essentially spying on her parents through these cameras, doesn't perceive it as she's being invasive, even though her husband does think that that's happening. Mm-hmm. It isn't she's invasive. trying to care. I right. See. I think she sees it as being close to her parents, like you're saying. Um, there is this closeness that she is able to bridge through the cameras because she lives on the opposite side of the country as them. But there is also this question of like, who owns these cameras? And where is this data going? And she works for a marketing agency that represents this uh, larger corporation that we can say is like any kind of Amazon, Google-esque type company that owns these cameras, sells these cameras. Um, and the question there is like, what are they really doing with that information? Yeah <laughs> to Patricia, that's like not so much the concern as much as it is that these cameras are tools for her to kind of scratch this itch and feel like she is doing something and developing a relationship with her parents and has this relationship with her parents, even though it is so one-sided. I think her parents are not aware in this story of how much she is watching them. Um, So technology in this story is really existing in this sort of gray area where it's facilitating a relationship, but it's not actually... It's it's not actually a substitute for connection.
1: Yeah, as much as she would like it to bridge that gap, she feels ultimately that it that it can't. And there are all those sort of other negative implications of what that who looks, who gets to look. And is it just a private looking or is it a is is it a, a, a much more sort of public and, and spread out kind of looking?
0: Right, and it's also about whose privacy matters more mm-hmm. the idea in the story of you know nobody cares about the privacy of a robber or a <laughs> um any kind of home invasion situation or people don't care about the privacy of their pets like it's fine to to watch them and i think i wrote this story before amazon released this uh, Alexa service that was also an elderly monitoring tool. It's good marketing. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that that actually existed. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote this, and i my editor had read an earlier draft, and she was like, "I kind of understand now why people would be interested in this, but that a lot of people were up in arms about the whole concept because mm-hmm. the elderly, they are people, and I right. know <laughs> <line> on by. <laughs> Uh, caretakers who are these caretakers (laughs) potentially amazon oh
1: god Uh, uh, it it made me think about all the kind of terrible uh, unexpected and but perhaps should have been expected consequences of these ring cameras that are everywhere that now um are being used to especially sort of call the police on people of color who are just kind of passing through neighborhoods, but get picked up by these ring cameras, uh, you know, especially black men and that, you know, the very fact that they cross through the camera's eye makes them then susceptible to all kinds of state uh, power.
0: Right. I think that ever since let's probably like the mid 2010s, this whole Utopian positive thinking of technology that technology is going to save us or uh, make everything better is really has really been put into question. And as technology, like these cameras, advances, you can see so many situations in which it is harmful to people. And I don't think that I'm necessarily anti technology or anti even these ring cameras or like home security cameras per se. But I think like this story, um, I want people and I want myself to really be critical of these of mm-hmm. these technology. And I think it's important to ask questions about who is using these and why. They are yes. Yeah. My fear, though, is even if in, in a theoretical way, I'm
1: not against them, is that they will become so right. pervasive that any of that critical thinking will not matter because everyone will have them and no one will feel like they can go back from that, which is often how technology happens. There's a creep and then everyone has it. And then sure, we can be you know, we're all constantly talking about how bad it is that, you know, Instagram is is taking our private information, but we all have it. And so it's, uh, I worry about those sort of surveillance things. And I wonder, you you worked as a writer in the tech industry, and I wondered if that uh, influenced any way the story or, or gave you some sort of insights into this?
0: Yes and no. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I was a tech reporter in 2012 to, I guess, like 2014. And that was just at the cusp of this period where people became much more critical of all of these products and like kind of this uh, the speed at which things were being developed in the tech world and um, that like techno, opt- what do we call it? Techno-optimism? Mm, <laughs> or, I like it. I don't I don't know, but it sounds good. He's right. Uh I think that people just really started to become more critical, but like you said, sometimes things develop so quickly and without question that they become normalized. I mean, we all carry basically a tracking device in our pockets all the time. <laughs> uh, no. We need it. We need our phones, or there's this- <laughs> we need our phones. But more than anything, I think it is just living with technology constantly and trying to understand its uh presence and my own relationship to it and other people's relationship to it um whether it be a like Instagram app that or TikTok that I spend like way too much time scrolling through or a surveillance home surveillance camera um it is just living with these items that i think makes makes its way into the stories because because they are just these both addictive and pleasurable items that are also scary mm-hmm. and potentially dangerous and harmful.
1: Yeah, well, that's well said. One of my favorite stories in the collection is the shortest, Lee Fan. It works chronologically backwards, paragraph by paragraph, to tell the story of a woman's life and sorrowful downfall. It packs an enormous amount of emotional weight for a barely three-page story. Do you think it's the form that's doing some of that emotional work, and how did this story take
0: that form? Definitely the form is doing a lot of the emotional work, and I think that's true of many short stories that maybe have a specific structure to them or a particular structure to them. And this movement backwards, well, first of all, I came to that form by reading other stories that do this backwards narration um, or backwards structure, whatever we want to call it. One of them was uh, Stephen Dixon's Wife in Reverse, and I was incredibly moved by this movement from a wife, I the story starts somewhat similarly. A wife um, has died, and then there's this movement reversed to show uh, her relationship to uh, her husband. and that movement backwards, I didn't understand really how it was working or why it was working, but I knew that I wanted to do something similar. I just didn't know, what kind of story would make sense for probably more than a year after I read that story. Um, And I think I'd landed on Lee Fan as a character, particularly because in the very first sentence, she is flattened by the narration. She's uh, referenced to as the Asian recycling lady. Mm -hmm. And that flattening even though there is a literal death who that flattening is a sort of death or uh, an out, I don't know, this external view of her is dehumanizing in many ways. Um, And the story is moving backwards and resisting that in a, in a small way. I think it's very easy to encounter people in the world and kind of flatten them to like, oh, you know, that's the Asian recycling lady or that's that rude guy who lives across the street um, or that's the person who like doesn't, I don't know. I'm li- I am live in the suburbs right now, so. <laughs> well, do you remember we both
1: lived, at, well, I live in Ithaca and you used to live here, but do you remember there's a man who uh, I think suffers pretty significant mental illness and who dances sort of in the downtown area? and mm-hmm. and and a lot of people refer to him as the
0: dancing man right and i actually have heard stories about him that i and who knows if they are true or not but mm-hmm. being able to like hear stories about a person and like let's say about a character that resists that flattening like you yeah. get a picture f- yeah. of who that person is and I I sometimes am a little bit hesitant about, you know, stories being powerful enough to make us empathetic. But at the very least, there is an exercise in the story and in the form itself of resisting that flattening. And that's why I think the form really is part of that emotional experience. Um, and it's short enough where you can experience a whole life in a condensed amount of time and that... I think is just a a strangely and unusual um, emotional experience to have, to be able to condense a lot of time into, you know, this story probably only takes less than five minutes to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having that, the condensed
1: uh, space of, of a full life in that short for whatever reason, it's, uh, it carries a, a special weight of being able to see all the sweep of an individual's life in that kind of condensed form. I don't know why, but it is it carries a lot of weight.
0: It's kind of like, and I am not actually a drinker, but I, this analogy just came to mind. It's like taking a shot and that like burn, <laughs> sipping a cocktail, like <laughs> enjoyable, but it's two totally different experiences. Actually, I hate shots, so it's not... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a
1: great analogy. I mean, yeah, and i don't I don't like shots either, but it works really it works really well here. Uh, and I'm going to think of very short stories as as now kind of shots and that sometimes burn. So you're not afraid to wade into pretty thorny political waters uh, in in these stories. There are examinations of the bias against girl babies in China, class tensions in the u s historical and personal violences, language politics, et cetera. While the politics isn't always front-facing, it's everywhere in these stories. How do you think of these stories as engaging the political, and what were some of the issues that came up as you were writing these narratives that you realized would be political?
0: I do think that all of my stories engage on some level with the political, oftentimes through. Character. I mean, it has to be relevant to the character and their experience of the world. And because I write about characters who are often living on the margins in some way. For example, uh, in To Get Rich is Glorious, this is a woman who doesn't feel like her ambitions are within reach in China. And that is in part because of the way that women are oppressed in China. And we can say here as well, uh, versus someone like Bobby in Cure for Life, who comes from a lower class background and similarly has these desires for a new life um, that is not especially within reach. And he really encounters a lot of I don't know. that that desire really comes from him encountering people who are from a higher class background than him. Mm-hmm. So it really does have to come from the characters. And they just infuse the story naturally, maybe because of the fact that we can't really escape these external forces that are beyond our control, that affect our lives. Um, I think it would be very strange to write a story that was completely apolitical. I I don't think I'm capable of it. I don't know that even if someone believed that they were writing something apolitical that actually would be.
2: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, if we I mean if we're treating politics as like the polity and the people mm-hmm. in all the various things that affect our lives and change our abilities to to experience the world as, as we would want, then you you I don't even think you can say a sentence that's not political. But I do think it's it's been very interesting for me running a literary festival that in, uh, you know, prior to Trump's election, we would regularly have panels about like politics and writing and writers would say, oh, my writing is not political. Like I, you know, I write through the aesthetic or whatever, <laughs> which I always kind of didn't, didn't really believe even if they believed it. But then after, um, Trump's election in, in 16, everybody talks about their work as political. I just find it funny that when you have a kind of like traumatic historical thing happen. You all of a sudden imagine your writing as carrying politics, but maybe in a in a more gentle period, at least for that particular writer that can say, Oh, I have nothing to do with politics,
0: yeah. I mean, I do think that maybe some writers might think that their work doesn't have anything to do with politics, but there is certainly something and if you're writing about anyone engaging, with another person, then Mm -hmm. there's going to be some kind of, I don't know, political sphere that is there, even if it is um, like a marital relationship. I mean, we get tons of domestic fiction, myself included. I have like a lot of domestic fiction, but having a character who is like, you know, a, a young woman, and then another character who is, I don't know, even like Another An older woman, like if they're interacting, there's something going on in terms of like generational divides. There's something's going on in terms of different worldviews. And that to me is political. Mm -hmm. We, I don't know, we can't really escape the world that we live in and the world that we engage with. So
1: yeah, as much as we might want to. (laughs) There is. <laughs> yeah, I'm like,
0: I'm sure there are situations in which there are many writers who don't think about the politics of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they mean—that like aesthetics comes first, or um, I don't know.
1: Which is its own kind of political statement, right? I live a life where I believe
0: I am untouched by political <laughs> concerns, mm-hmm. and I think for me, like, I just couldn't possibly imagine writing a book or writing a story that. Um, where I didn't think about the position of the character in relation to others.
1: Mm. Multiple of your stories concern the ways in which friendships change pretty radically over time. Each story seems undergirded with the idea that we believe we'll always remain the same person, but that our relationships prove that we change Uh, often. Often, over the course of our lives, why are these changes and the effects they have on relationships interesting to you as a fiction writer?
0: I guess it also kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of politics, too. It's just relationships are the I don't know, that maybe one of the main lenses through which we or I, I will not speak for others, that I, like, understand myself understand others, understand the world around me. And these friendships that are in the stories, uh, they they are so fundamental to the characters in a way that I have also experienced friendships where someone, the way they think, the way they behave, the way they uh, interact with others, the way they even like move through the world kind of, infects my way of thinking infects the way i move through the world infects the way i behave um and and that's not necessarily even a negative thing that can be something that's based out of love out of out ad- of admiration um but when those friendships change or develop or fade away that completely like rocks these characters understandings of themselves and again of the world so this is why i think like it makes my way it makes its way into my fiction Mm. there is so much um tied to these relationships for these characters there's so much tied to um how i guess just really how rich a relationship can be for a person and how challenging it can be to lose something. It really does feel like losing part of yourself. Um, it's a very complex dynamic. and I think anything where there's complexity and where there are questions, that's where I gravitate to for writing. And lost
1: friendships have a, a particular kind of pain that comes with them. and it's and it does feel like you've lost almost a part of yourself. And you you spend I, I'm just speaking for myself that but you spend you spend a long time sort of questioning where did it go did it dissolve naturally and and where is that part of me that was this important part of that
0: friendship mm-hmm. and I think that's in part because there is not a clear script for the loss of a friendship whereas
1: mm.
0: with romantic relationships I mean we have all sorts of media like constantly bombarding us and like there's probably tons of there are probably an uncountable number of articles online of like how to break up and like how to <laughs> 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 and there are like these very you know no, clear paths that you can take after a romantic breakup but with friendship breakups partly because maybe in our society we don't always value friendships as much as say a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when they fade away or when like we don't nurture them enough it is just so confusing there's there are no clear paths to take and so i think that's why there's so much time spent mulling over these lost friendships again i speak for myself and for my characters too
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're speaking for me too so throw me (laughs) throw me in there too.
0: Yeah, I mean I've had a lot of people who read the friendship stories in these in this book in particular who are just like, wow, yeah, I felt that. That's it's just it's something that is so common, the experience is so common, and yet we still don't have these like I don't know, these these understandings of why friendships first of all fall apart. But even more so, like why we don't spend as much time nurturing and valuing our friendships as much as our intimate uh, romantic, more traditionally romantic relationships.
1: Yeah, but I I absolutely love what you've come up with there in terms of uh, not being a script that we can draw from and then not enough kind of set narratives for this is what you do this is how you experience it this is how long it takes you to get over it even if those are all kind of canned a little bit with intimate relationships Mm -hmm. we don't have them in the same way for friendships and until you said that i would have never been able to express it but it's so true
0: yeah i mean it's like that is part of the reason why it's so hard like nobody's come your friends aren't usually coming to you being like okay like we're done i (laughs) here are all the reasons for why and here is the closure there is no closure a lot of the time (laughs) no no definitely not in the story in cure
1: for life bobby green works for cure market which is hilariously described as the bougie store for rich ass hippies that pays three dollars above minimum wage Bobby has higher aspirations and thinks about a future of wealth and ease. His brief friendship with a high school student working at that store is misconstrued and the two-part ways. When they meet again, Bobby's circumstances have changed very little. You are clearly interested in the mythology of mobile class statuses and the subtle ways that our fantasies of a different life brush up against reality. Will you talk about the evolution of cure for Life and the ways in which your character um characters encounter class?
0: Cure for life originally, it started from the perspective of the teenage girl who is in this friendship with Bobby Green, who is now the uh, the the main, I guess uh, mind and interiority through which we get the story. But, That was challenging mostly because the girl is only in high school and she comes from a similar class background from Bobby Green, but is in such an earlier life stage where whatever aspirations she has, whatever dreams she has of mobility at that age, pretty much society and the world around her is telling her, yes, you can do this. You're going to do this. Um, Just work hard. And Bobby Green, I switched it to his perspective, not only because of the power dynamic between him and the teenage girl, uh, but also because he's at this later stage in life where it becomes a little bit more clear that whatever dreams and aspirations of mobility that he does have, they are slowly slipping away from him. and the reality of the situation really in this country is that most people do not move out of their the class that they were born into
2: mm-hmm.
0: um this is and it's very depressing um there is not much class mobility even though there is this myth of the american dream of the like i you know pulled myself up from my bootstraps whatever that might mean um and i think very many successful people in this country like to repeat that narrative over and over, so much so that everyone believes it and everyone can believe that, like, they too will one day be famous and on TV and rich and living in this, like, gigantic mansion. When in reality, that's not the case for the vast, vast majority of people. And even people who say that they, quote unquote, like worked hard and pulled themselves up pulled themselves up by their bootstraps like oftentimes we learn that they came from um a you know middle at least middle class backgrounds with like a lot of support from their families or uh a lot of help and bobby green is someone who has very little support very little help and i think i have both as a warmth and love for bobby but also this kind of um I don't know, this like cynicism about Uh him as well. And I think this story is really about balancing that and depicting someone who truly believes that he can work his way out of his situation and then finds that he cannot. There's also the layer of this friendship that you mentioned in the story where he is In the way that he is blind to the fact that he is not going to work his way out of his quote-unquote lot in life, he's also blind to the power that he does hold. I think if the story is about anything, it is kind of about the way that we can delude ourselves and also not be able to understand the privileges that we do have, but I don't know. That's also the first time that I've said that's what the story is about. Because <laughs> usually we say like, "and this is the grand idea of this story."
1: <laughs> well, I mean, if uh, there are many, there are many grand ideas in it, and um, but I think you've you, you've illustrated how I, it felt to me anyway to to read it and to understand the misjudging of one's privileges and a misjudging of one's ability to work oneself out of something. And that his, you know, that relationship he has with the, the girl who's in high school, I don't think he quite understands that she's dipping a toe in, in this this class world and doesn't need to, can just take, remove that toe whenever she wants. Mm-hmm. Whereas he is up to his neck in it and there's no, you know, there's no climbing out.
0: Right. Even though I say like, you know, the vast majority of people do not are not able to move out of their class background. That is not to say that I think that like everyone should just give up or something, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I hope not. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I think really this, this story and a lot of my other stories too, when they are dealing with class, it is really trying to point at this larger system that we live within particularly capitalism and this grocery store is really where you see these like clashes of the classes because he works at this high-end grocery store he's catering to these upper middle class bougie type (laughs) customers, and it's where i don't know where really we are able to see like how different it is for people of different classes in this space. I mean, really any kind of service industry space or like retail, like anything where you see this idea of like, what is an essential worker and who is essential um, in the way that like, I guess what it means, it's they're essential in the sense that they're like servicing these people. I think there was a joke during a, a sad joke during the pandemic. It's like a lot of all the rich people were holed up in their apartments while like Poor people are like driving around, like picking up all their groceries for that. Yeah, yeah. And nobody would make that connection. Yeah. (laughs) But be safe, order and get your things delivered. Well, some people do not have that privilege.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Before I let you go, um, I would love to know what you're reading right now and whether you have any recommendations for listeners
0: yes uh well right now I'm actually reading a galley of a book called real Americans by Rachel Kong and that is her second book she was uh she wrote goodbye vitamin that came out Which I loved I'm very excited for this one I am very into it so far and I'm it's it's different from her first book and it's also very thick so I'm like excited to go into a multi-generational long novel which I haven't mm. been a- um and completely on the other end of the spectrum is terr story by hilary Leichter, which is a very slim slender and yet still multi-generational mm-hmm. story about a family and it's just such a magical and pleasurable book that is also deeply sad yes it is Those are like uh, sad books <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's um
1: you're the third person to recommend it on the show and and she was a guest um, but it's I, it's a book that has hit a lot of people, I think.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really wonderful. I, I love the book so much. And I guess one, sorry, one last one, because we're talking stories. Yeah. Uh, Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go by Cleo Chan. And that came out in August as well. Just these very surreal, fun, and sometimes like creepy stories mm. Uh about technology, mediated lives, um, mostly about Asian and Asian American women. So our story collections, I think, do have a lot of uh, overlaps, which is maybe why I liked it. But she definitely gets a a lot more weird than me. It sounds awesome. I love a good weird story. So I'm, I'm
1: excited for that. I can't wait to try and get my hands on the real Americans and and I keep recommending Terra Story along with Tomb Sweeping, which uh, is just full of amazing stories. You can just dip in and find a, a wonderful gem at every moment in this collection. And it stands with your, with your debut novel as really a, a, the continuing of your, of your work being very meaningful to the literary world. So I feel lucky to have gotten to talk to you twice.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. I, I feel lucky to have gone to talk to you twice. Oh, But thank also, you. twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Alexandra Chang for coming on the show to talk about her debut collection of short stories, Tomb Sweeping. You can find links to purchase Tomb Sweeping and all of Alexandra's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.